Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. Mr. Jim Coburn, how are you doing, sir? Oh, wait, you're not unmuted yet. Ah, there we go. This oh. is Jim Coburn. How are you doing, sir? I was in a box. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Speaking of in a box, uh, Ohio State apparently is in a box. There's much angst in Columbus. Uh, before we start talking players, let's talk the results of the conference championships and, of course, the deliberations of the Star Chamber, the tribunal, who have handed down their wisdom. Should Ohio State be left out when the music stops? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Hmm. Honestly, they sh- I, I wouldn't necessarily leave them out, but at the I don't know. That's the thing. That's the thing about the playoffs and all that other kind of stuff is there are teams like Penn State that have played tougher schedules per se and have mm-hmm. done a little bit extra something something. But there is the rule of well, if this team beats this team and like the the, the most people when they do power rankings or do other things they they usually go by the well this team beat this team and because they beat this team that means that they can beat this team you know very um, sort of process I guess right. but the, I mean the associative property I think is what that's called exactly exactly but I'm more of the just kind of looking at everything and kind of going all right who um, who 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 really who really deserves it or maybe not deserves it but like it's kind of in that sort of um, Area and I mean, if they put Ohio State in, I don't really have any qualms with it. I think there's about, I mean, you, obviously Alabama is kind of in the discussion. Wisconsin kind of, but that's the thing. Wisconsin was performing pretty well, and then they lost to Ohio State. I still think Ohio State should go over them, but I mean, I I, I don't have any issues with Ohio State getting in. I guess. I don't know. That that that's basically what I that the whole long thing was just to say, yeah, no big deal. 
<laughs> That's the breaking news. Then. So no, no big deal. So it's over. I, I agree that Ohio State, to me, it wasn't the glaring omission. If, if anybody wants to, you know, raise a ruckus, and I think has the right to do so, it's UCF. Now, obviously, UCF suffers from the painful malady of not being a Power 5 conference team, and that means you can't play the reindeer games that the other teams get to play, fairly or unfairly. And obviously, we've seen Boise State and even going back to Tulane, you know, with the Sean King, Bowden, you know, Rich Rodriguez, offensive coordinator, Tulane, semi-juggernaut. And that was a really good Tulane team. Uh, had some really good football players on it and terrific coaching staff. And they, unfortunately, where they were Tulane. I mean, it was the one – really the one great, great shining moment of Tulane football greatness that it wasn't able to be rewarded by a chance. So of course, there was no, uh, you know, they didn't have the tournament in those days. It was, you know, the old-fashioned bowl system. But Tulane even got kind of short shrift in, uh, in that area. I mean, they didn't play in the Sugar Bowl or the Orange Bowl or anything cool bowl. They ended up in something like the, the you know, the hearts of, something, the platter full of chick chitlins bowl or whatever it was. The, the fact that despite, you know, everything that's happened, we still are having a debate about the fourth spot, the fourth seat, which is always going to happen. And if they go to eight, there'll always be debate about the eighth seat or whatever. But this particular year with the Big Ten being, you know, fairly closely bunched together, a lot of good teams, no one great team. The SEC, I'll say it. To, to me, the entire conference is down. And I I sort of predicted it. I don't know if you guys remember back when we did the SEC uh, preview show or whatever, and I said I thought the SEC West was not this unstoppable juggernaut. I thought the East was a year away. And I, I still think that. I think the SEC West, East will be really good in a year or two. And I think the SEC West, We'll still be Alabama and Auburn and LSU, but none of those three. I mean, Auburn was better than it was, obviously, the year previous, dramatically better. But that's a a team with flaws, but a good team. Alabama is – one thing is Alabama is a very good team, but it wasn't the Alabama of of old. LSU, I'll be honest, I have – LSU wasn't bad, but I've never been less impressed. I don't know. I, I don't know how best to put it. LSU left me – I mean, I guess the term met was almost existed, almost invented for what I saw when I watched LSU this year. I, I made myself watch LSU about three times this year, and I, I need to watch it at least once more. But I, each time I just met, literally. And obviously on offense, we always, almost always say meh about LSU, but even their defense, which is always supposed to be sexy and exciting and filled with wild creatures that are going to one day rampage throughout the NFL, their defense didn't blow my mind this year. I, I was not blown away by LSU. Uh, Mississippi State was, as often they are, wildly inconsistent, you know, looking like a top 10 team and then looking sometimes like a team that would struggle with UCF, right? Uh, might even lose to UCF some at times. Uh, Arkansas, well, their coach got fired. I guess that tells you most of what you need to know about how their season went. 
Uh, you know, and there's lots of jokes about Bobby Petrino <laughs> returning, but uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think people are just having fun. Uh, I mean, the SEC West was not, like I said, an unstoppable juggernaut by a stretch. The East was more interesting, at least to me. Kentucky is better, but better for Kentucky still means like seven and five. Fandy sort of plateaued, I guess, lumped back a little bit. Uh, Georgia, as I, you know, and one thing I think a lot of people predicted that Georgia was going to be the class or Florida's obviously having, you know, issues. So I think this might be a bit of a run for Georgia in the East. I think they might have the East, as the kids would say, on lock for a little while while Florida tries to get its act back together. Uh, But, yeah, the SEC as a whole, not scary or not as scary. Does that does that does that match with sort of what you saw this year? Yeah, I mean, is the SEC a good conference? Yeah. yeah. Are they the top conference? No. The Big Ten is the top conference. So, in terms of competitiveness, coaching, like everything you could like. Here's the basic way to put it: How many coaches in the Big Ten got fired? Like big name coaches where you're like, oh my gosh, they fired that guy? Or there was a lot of drama over the firing? And instead, people are hunting for some of the sort of mid-level Big Ten coaches are on a lot of people's lists. You know, quite the opposite. Exactly. Uh, All the young, I mean, Pat Fitzgerald, I don't know why there isn't more demand for him. He's only pound for pound one of the top 20 coaches in America, but whatever. Um, Jeff Brom, of all people, was a super hot name this year. Mentioned in connection with the Tennessee job. Mentioned in connection with the, um, I don't think the Florida job, but mentioned in connection with the Arizona State job before Herm was signed. Mentioning at least three or four jobs. I think maybe, I can't remember the Texas A&M job, if you're, if you're linked to that one, but almost all the jobs, <laughs> with that one or two exceptions, you heard Brom's name mentioned. So, you know, yes, you're correct. The the Big Ten has a a a greater clump of good teams and quality teams and teams that could beat each other. Like a lot of the teams in the Big Ten, I mean, people always talk about the SEC beating up on each other, but the Big Ten beat up on each other pretty good this year. Uh, obviously, their best chance to make the Final Four was Wisconsin, uh, but despite that, most of us had little to no faith in Wisconsin. And once again, Wisconsin has this problem almost every year. I don't know who's in charge of the scheduling there, but their non-conference scheduling is usually pretty – once again, we used the word met earlier. I mean, that's a team that needs to have a Notre Dame and or a uh, Oregon or somebody you know on their non-conference schedule every year so that we can stop saying, you know, well, Wisconsin doesn't play anybody because they're – you know, they're one more quality victory, you know, almost every year away from being taken seriously. And then, of course, when they end up in, you know, a, you know, a Big Ten championship game or whatever it is, people almost always back the other team, even though the other team may have a win, I mean, a win, you know, a win or two less or a loss or two more than Wisconsin because, once again, Wisconsin's schedule. So, and, of course, they're – with the exception of Russell Wilson, their struggles to find. I mean, they are the LSU of the Big Ten, only with a much softer schedule. 
the you know the the evergreen tweet of boy if they could only find a quarterback of course you know other than Russell Wilson. So uh, let's move on to the ACC. The ACC I think may be the second most compelling and interesting conference in America behind the Big Ten. Uh, they have Clemson, which is becoming their Alabama, for lack of a better way of putting it. Though obviously it's not quite the same, but they have. They're Wisconsin in Miami. The hey, they look good, but they haven't played anybody team. Uh, I guess in to some extent. Well, I mean, uh, normally Florida State would be normally uh, Florida State would be there. You know, their you know their Auburn or whatever. Their their other really really good team, but you know, Florida State had a lot of things happen this year in Brown, Tallahassee, and who knows what the you know way forward will be for for the Florida State program. That's a, once again, we'll talk about them in a little more detail. Uh, Carolina, of course, sort of returned to the mean, you know, with the loss of a lot of really good players last year, and they, they aren't at the area where they, they can't just reload. They, they need a year or two to build back up after they have a bunch of quality players leave that program. Uh, Boston College is still, is basically, if somebody wanted to take a team out of the ACC and put them in the Big Ten, which is what they did with Maryland, the team to do it was Boston College because Boston College is with everything other than location and culture. But in terms of football, they're basically a Big Ten school. They they lack explosive speed at almost every position, but they always have one or two really good backs. They always have really good linebackers and a couple of defensive and offensive linemen who are going to play in the NFL virtually every year. They are the closest thing to a Big Ten school that the ACC has. And, you know, like I said, Maryland should come back to the ACC. But uh, once again, it's for another another, another discussion. Why, why, why? Uh, let's see. Syracuse is, you know, uh, that plucky, interesting, you know, sort of their Vandy slash, I guess they're kind of the comedy. Purdue. Yeah, like they're Purdue. They're Vandy. They're right. Well, they're gonna upset Wake Forest some- would kind of be like Purdue. But yeah, there you go. Right. Kinda, but they have a couple yeah. of those teams that are going to win six or seven games and upset somebody and maybe get a little too excited and then get smashed the next week by another good team. But but they're, once again, building something in Syracuse. I mean, there's Dino Babers is a coach who I think has that program headed in the right direction before finally he's snatched off of that campus to go coach it, you know, some bigger, more more powerful and rich program. Which is funny because, you know, Syracuse is obviously not that well. I mean, you have to go way back to get to them being a national championship contender, back to the Ben Schwartzwalter days. But they were a really good program in the Dick McPherson days that went to things like the Sugar Bowl and whatnot. So they they were a destination program not that long ago, and we'll see if they can go back to being an actual destination program. But right now they're a really good stepping stone program. Uh, And Dino Babers is turning them into a really awesome stepping stone. Uh, the Pac-12 as a whole seemed down to me as well. They have, once again, three or four quality programs, a couple of sort of mid-level programs, but the bottom of the Pac-12 was pretty bottomy this year. I mean, pretty – there's years where they're, even their worst programs are interesting and, you know, will, might once again, might beat you if you're sloppy. However, the worst programs in the Pac-12 were just bad this year. Um, True. Yeah, yeah, and including pro- some programs that were really good for a long time have fallen upon hard times. So we'll see if they could 
turn that around. Obviously, UCLA fired their coach, a guy that I don't think will be unemployed very long. I think somebody will either in the television world or in the coaching world, somebody will snatch up Jim Moore. He might back in the NFL as a coordinator, or somebody might put him in the booth. He's a guy who's good on television, pretty good-looking, well-spoken, uh, comes obviously from a coaching tree. Uh, but, yeah, we'll see where he lands. Uh, obviously, we already talked. We haven't, we, we, haven't really, we haven't really talked about the Arizona State hires, uh, but I guess we can now. What do you think about the Arizona State hire, which has been fairly controversial? Oh, who who did Arizona State hire? Oh, I'm sorry. Something... I've been li- I've been oh. living under a rock for a couple of days. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> uh, a little a little something I like to call Herb Edwards. You play to win the game. Oh no. Herm Edwards, um, you you have been living under a rock. Oh, you know what? I just thought the worst thing in the world. No, it's not per se. Some people have been freaking out, including a lot of Arizona State people, have been acting as if you know somebody shot their grandmother. I, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, hmm. I mean, Herm Edwards isn't a bad coach. I mean, the thing well, is, he hasn't coached in a while. He hasn't coached in a while, and he hasn't coached at the collegiate level in – I'll give you a hint. Can you guess what decade was the last time he, he was astride a college campus as a coach? Probably the 80s. You are correct, sir. The yeah. early 1980s, to be exact. So it's been <laughs> a little while since he's been a, on the college campus, at least in gotcha. a coaching capacity. So when, John, so when Joe Montana was roaming around, that's when he was <laughs> – Coaching college a, a, a little after a little after Joe Montana, but but yes, it's been a it's been a minute. He he he. Um, I think it was it might have been Vermeil. No, was it Vermeil? No, it was. Um, oh, I can't remember whose staff it was now. But he was on staff at San Diego State. He and John Fox, and it was a good little staff actually. Uh, they had at San Diego State back in those days. Um, I think they had three or four guys who went on to either be head coaches of the NFL or um, or uh, collegiate level were on that staff. Nice little staff he was on. But, yeah, it's been a minute. Then he – I think he might have spent a little time as a quote-unquote uh, – he was – he then went to the NFL as a DB coach. Then he – I think he might have – he may have actually had like a one-year stint back in college in the later part of the 1980s. But – he has not been full-time staff on a collegiate program in, yes, more than 30 years. So, yes, there's a little concern about that. Here's what I will say. What he will be able to do that no Arizona State coach has been able to do in a very, 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 very long time, one is that really great name recognition nationally. Now, Todd Graham was a good coach, but he wasn't, you know, a super name brand coach to the point where, you know, once again, grandma, like your grandma wasn't like you have heard of Todd Graham. Your grandma has heard of Herm Edwards most likely. She's at least a nominal football fan. So it may give them a little bit of advantage when it comes to that. Obviously, he's not so much known as a coach to younger people, but they know him from, well, YouTube and or from ESPN. So at least there's some, like I said, name recognition, even though, yeah, you know, he's he hasn't done a lot of, as you said, a lot of coaching in a while at any level, but hasn't coached to the collegiate level in, since before any of the people he'll be talking to, recruit-wise, were even born. In fact, 
some of the parents will be very young the last time he was a college coach. Uh, but, yes, that's probably been one of the more sort of surprising hires, but it wasn't as surprising when you think about the fact that the AD, uh, Mr. Ray Edwards, used to be his agent back when uh, Herm was a coach. So they have a, a long and strong friendship going back many, many years. And it's not a – it's funny because, you know, people don't tend to think about the old boy network at work, though it's always at work. But this was a rare exception to the rule where a minority candidate is actually helped, you know, by the, the old boy network or whatever you want to call it. Then, let's see, um, USC, obviously, nom nominally the class program still, uh, the most talented program. And, you know, I think people finally are buying into Clay Helton on the national stage. I mean, I think there's still sort of this weird sort of, wait, wasn't he, isn't he, uh, you know, people still sort of have this feeling that he's like a, like he's the world's longest tenured interim coach or whatever. But I think finally people are is thinking in that he's for real the coach at USC. Oh, it's Clay Hilton. I mean, yeah, he hasn't really done anything to dismiss that fact. Um, I think a lot of the struggles that has happened this year has been more individual players, per se, than actual strategy. So, you know, basically Sam Darnold kind of making mistakes uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, certain games he got into where he kind of threw a bunch of picks or – um, just players kind of not playing well in general. But, yeah, I, I would say he's pretty much established himself as, you know, a coach that can get it done, you know, for the most part. Okay, yeah. And finishing off the Power Five, the Big 12, you know, which is always probably the most fun to watch of all of the, you know, <laughs> I mean, Kansas State can sometimes, you know, ugly things up a little bit for you. But for the most part, when you're watching – Big 12 football, you know, you're having a good time. I mean, the, the, it is in terms of pure entertainment value, it's probably consistently, at least amongst the quote-unquote big boys, the most really fun conference to watch. Uh, Oklahoma came out of there yet again. Oklahoma has sort of asserted itself and, and has gained a little bit of space between, you know, themselves and their pursuers. TCU is still doing the TCU thing, defense and – you know, trying to out-scheme certain things and, you know, basically going to war with a bunch of two to four stars. I don't know if they've ever had a five-star in the history of the program. They have. It slipped my mind. I know they've had some, some a couple of four stars, including Kenny, Kenny Hill, of course, who transferred there. But, but it's mostly a program built around two- and three-star recruits. Once again, pound for pound, you know, with the great pass and great, great coach. But they just can't quite get over the hump in terms of, well, I mean, they, they have had years, obviously, going back to the Andy Dalton days when they did manage to get over the hump. But generally, they end up getting thwarted by Oklahoma. Oklahoma State is usually in the running somewhere. They're that, you know, they're that team that usually wins about 10 or so games seemingly every year. And then you've got Kansas State, which wins eight or nine games seemingly almost every year. And then you've got uh, – you see a huge drop-off. But now that, you know, two wins in the next season, 
But now Iowa State has bridged that gap a little bit. There's no longer this huge drop, you know, from the top three or three or four teams. Texas is trying to get back into that top three or four team discussion. They're not quite there yet. They're still a team that's probably going to be, you know, a seven or eight win team for the next couple of years before, you know, Tom Herman's recruiting acumen puts them back in the 10, 11 win discussion. Uh, what are your impressions overall of the Big 12? And then we'll start talking about the actual matchups. And, you know, also, I guess, if you uh, if you have any questions for me, maybe about the coaching carousel, since apparently you've missed some things. Yeah, in terms of the Big 12, it's a, I mean, it's a, I don't want to say it's a bad conference per se. I do think there's a lot of strong teams in there. I think the one thing that's consistently never been fixed is defense in that conference because I can't I can't really remember the last time there was a big time defensive player from the Big Twelve. You know, like there's definitely some I mean DBs, yeah, there's there's definitely some DBs every once in a while. Uh but in terms of like defensive linemen or even offensive linemen for that matter, uh, you know, because you used to have like Oklahoma with Trent Williams and, uh, of course, Gerald McCoy, you know, like all that kind of uh, beefiness, I guess, hasn't exactly continued up to this point. So it's it's just one of those things where uh, a lot of the players have kind of gotten smaller, um, which may have to do with, you know, the spread offenses uh, or that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, with the Big 12 – I think it's a pretty – I mean, it's a good conference. I kind of have them in that Pac-12 slash Big 12 kind of thing. Kind of like they're kind of similar to me in, in terms of having – they have some really good teams at the top, and then it's just kind of a slope. Uh, and the the Pac-12 doesn't necessarily have a Kansas, although our Oregon State might be like Kansas. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I – I actually met a guy uh, a couple of days ago. He had a Kansas uh, tattoo on his leg, and I was – he's like, oh, I'm not a football fan. Like, it's it's kind of this disgust <laughs> of, like, uh, me asking him, like, oh, you're a Kansas fan, huh? And he's like, oh, oh not the football team, though. Not the football not – the, not the football team. Not them uh, type of thing. But, uh, but, yeah, I always find that kind of funny. But, yeah, I mean uh, – I, I like the Big 12. I think offensively, it's always, like you said, it's always fun to watch, uh, offensively speaking. But I don't know, man. I just wish there was a little bit more balance with defense, you know. Like, that's my only kind of sticking point with the Big 12 is there's not a lot of balance. Even the team like Oklahoma, they're not really playing defense per se. You know, like it's really the Baker Mayfield show, and then the defense kind of comes up here and there, you know. Yeah, the job of the defense is to force the occasional turnover. Um, you know, maybe they'll get a strip sack every now and again uh, or, you know, something like that. That seems to be what the job of the defense is. They're not exactly, you know, strangling the life out of the other team on offense. Uh, and, right, you have to go back, I mean, the Big 12 wasn't even the Big 12 the last time you had that kind of defense. I'm old enough to remember when Bob Davey was the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M and they had the wrecking crew, you know, that 
And that was a great, great, great defense. However, that was a long, long, long time ago. And literally, the sons of some of those guys are now college football players, right? I mean, literally. Uh, the Ke- the Kevin Murray was the coach, not coach, I mean the um, quarterback on one of those Texas A&M wrecking crew, R.C. Slocum coach team. His son, Kyler Murray, you know, briefly was a Texas a uh, of course, has made his way to Oklahoma. But the, um, yeah, the Big 12, you could actually have good defenses. But once again, it wasn't called Big 12. It was the, the Big 8. <laughs> and there was some, and, and even in the, and actually, let me take that back. Even in the, in the, in the early days of the, the new Big 12, or the old Big 12, but this is the new, this is the new Big 12 there now, um, which actually had 12 teams in it. But the old Big 12, Kansas State, back in the 90s, had good defenses. And Texas, you know, back in the 90s, had good defenses. Even into the early 2000s, had good defenses. Uh, Oklahoma had some pretty good defenses. Not great, but good defenses. Oklahoma State had some pretty good, at least individual defensive players. Uh, You know, Kansas is still Kansas even in those days. Um, oh, actually, there was the Mangino years. You know, there's a guy I'm shocked hasn't gotten the job again, actually, with all the turnover and everything. I mean, this is a man that managed to have two double-digit winning seasons at Kansas. Kansas, people. I mean, that's – I don't – it's difficult to explain the degree of difficulty. You know what I'm saying? Like – Winning 10 games at Kansas and then doing it twice. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of a good analogy for how high a degree of difficulty that is as a coaching feat. Um, I mean, it's up there with Schnellenberger when he first built Miami from, you know, a school that would get whipped up on by smaller programs. Frankly, uh, you know, previously these this struggle with people like Tampa. Tampa doesn't even have a football program anymore, but they used to get, you know, the business sometimes from from University of Tampa, which has dropped football. Um, but yeah, Miami pre pre Snellenberger uh, was almost non-existent. I mean, um, people didn't even talk about it really. I mean, it's almost up there with that. In terms of what Mark Mangino did in his in his run at Kansas, and like I said, I'm a little, even though he did some very unpleasant and you know mean spirited things, I'm a little surprised because you know Leach has gotten a job again. I mean, most of the miscreant head coaches from that era, unless they didn't physically harm someone, uh, you know, fairly severely physically harm someone, most of them have gotten jobs again. But uh, yeah, Big Twelve. Uh, and let me just ask you this, because you do a lot of metrical work. How does UCF actually stack up with the quote-unquote big boys when you actually look at their numbers? Well, hmm, I mean, it depends on how you look at Based on – so, like, I did a system of data where I took a bunch of stuff – I don't know, it takes a while to explain this. Basically, I take, I take all the offensive stuff. I take all the defensive stuff. I take all the special team stuff. 
throw it all into one number, and then add a layer of, of strength of schedule to it, essentially, which is also determined by, you know, the teams they play and stuff like that. The only thing that really holds UCF down is their strength of schedule because they have one of the top offenses in college football. They have, uh, in terms of being extremely dynamic and not turning the football over and a high completion percentage, uh, of course, McKenzie Milton has been one of the top quarterbacks in college football. Defensively, they have a very strong defense as well. It's not the best defense in college football, but it's definitely pretty decent. And special teams-wise, they have really strong special teams. But they just haven't really played the best strength of schedule. In fact, basically, to kind of, I guess, put this into perspective, there, there's, there's uh, strength of schedule score has been like a 37.60. And all the teams that got into the college playoff, they played at least an above-average schedule. So, but that's the only thing that really holds them down is the is the strength of schedule. But everything else is good. I mean, statistically, they they're undefeated. They one of the top offenses in college football. Like everything else is fine. Uh, it's just the strength of schedule stuff is the only thing that really kind of holds them down. Okay. And, of course, I can let you know that's one of the things that my understanding is they're looking to do is to try to, you know, put a little more strength in that schedule. Of course, unfortunately, as you also know, schedules are made years in advance. They're difficult to change. To change them, you have to break existing agreements and then pay people to do so and then, you know, obviously convince other people to play you who may not particularly be excited about playing you now that you're good. Exactly. Now, my personal feelings on it, I think UC, uh, UCF should be in the college football playoff uh, because they're undefeated and they have all those positives, like I said. It, it's basically like this. You have all these positives and you have one thing that's a negative. That's it. So I kind of look at it as the glass half full approach. But it's like really half full. You know what I mean? Like it's not even half full. It's like full and there's like like 10 percent at the top that's not really filled up but that's just my kind of perspective and plus i just i just want to watch the world burn you know <laughs> i just want to i just want to see stuff shake it up because you have a team like central florida that is playing so well statistically speaking it's not like they played a terrible strength of schedule it's not like they are a sunbelt school you know it's not like that so it would just be one of those things where i would like to see that happen because I think it would be a fun uh, it'd be a fun fun storyline and it would be something where they actually could have some success potentially but that's also why the 18 playoff which you know again is kind of a it'll probably happen eventually but it's why I think that definitely should exist because it would give I think if we did have an 18 playoff then UCF would be in that 18 playoff but because we don't they just have to go with brand loyalty you know they have to have the coca-cola in alabama the big red in oklahoma you know stuff like that the pepsi there's a lot of red teams in this playoff to be honest yeah yeah georgia alabama oklahoma clemson is orange yep. which is you know could be a shade of, of red in the right circumstance yeah so the, the, Fire, fiery takes here. 
But um, but yeah. Yeah, so that's huh. too early to ask you for um, what do you call it for <clears throat> for predictions. Plus, the playoffs are like a million years away, so I won't bother with that. What I will bother you about just a little bit. Uh, do you feel like you? I always ask you this, but what do you feel like you know now that you didn't know before? What do you feel like you learned? from last week's slate of games, if anything, but I'm assuming something. Hmm. Well, I, okay, well, I recently did, I reran all the quarterback data again because we're at the, the pre-bowl. See, I do the midpoint data, and then I do the pre-bowl data, and then I do the post stuff obviously. And that's after people have declared and stuff like that. So, you know, after things are set in stone, then I take that next step and just finish it off with all the games plus the bowl, plus the bowl game, essentially. Because the bowl game can kind of sway things a little, like if you're, if you're middling, like you're like, say you have like a score of 79, right? And you have a really good bowl performance that could bump you up into an 80, potentially. So, uh, in terms of, like, how the scoring system goes. But I recently got done with all of that, at least for quarterbacks. I'm still collecting stuff for FBS and, of course, FCS, which is taking a little bit longer because it's FCS and, you know, there's a whole a whole thing with that kind of stuff. But uh, after going through all that stuff, there was a lot of improvement. A lot of the quarterbacks that were not doing very well at the midpoint kind of bounced back as the season uh, went on, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so, for example, so uh, guys like Josh Rosen, for example, he was a guy that was not even in the 80-plus range. Uh, now he is in the 80-plus range. So he's kind of gotten better to kind of finish the season off. Um, Sam Darnold kind of improved a bit. Uh, guys that kind of took a slight step back, but not a big one, is like Ryan Finley. Finley was like a 90-plus range guy, and he kind of took a step back. But the biggest riser of all is Riley Ferguson. He's a guy that back at the midpoint was a 70-plus guy, and based on my data right now, he's he's basically in the 90-plus area. So he's had a really strong finish uh, to the season, obviously, with uh, Riley Ferguson. At at uh, Memphis. Hmm. Well, as you know, I'm a Ferguson fan, and he was on my all-emerging team a couple of seasons ago when he first replaced Paxton Lynch, and he's on my all-underappreciated team now. Though, once again, it could be one of the things that changes. He might catch someone's eye, and all of a sudden, you know, the top, you know, 100 talk then turns into the top 50 talk. Big, then, he's a big, tall, white guy. When you're a big, when you're a big tall white guy, anything is possible, man. Anything Eddie is possible. You Eddie can be a big arm. tall and white. Right. Yeah. But would you add strong arm to it? I mean, a big tall white guy with a strong arm. Strong right? arm, yeah. Well, I mean, Blake Bortles didn't have a strong arm, so he was able to, but <laughs> you know, take that to the. But yeah, I know what you mean. I'm just saying. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, he has a strong arm as well. So, but 
those those have been kind of the big. Oh, and and Lamar Jackson. I know Lamar Jackson fans. Again, I'm not to, I'm not saying I'm a hater of Lamar Jackson. I just think that he uh, th- there's a lot of stuff to be desired, but he also kind of had a stronger finish to the uh, to the second half. Um, so that's the main thing. The midpoint, it was kind of a disaster mode. Like, the house is on fire, wife left me, cousin left me. Like, it was at that level of, like, what's going on here? All the quarterbacks are playing terribly. All the quarterbacks are horrible. What are we going to do? And so far, everybody finished pretty strong. So I think that's a good – I think that's a good sign, I guess, is, is all I'm trying to say. At least if you – if you're one of those people that actually like the quarterback class going in, I think the quarterback class kind of finished strongly, statistically speaking, versus what it looked like at the midpoint. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I'll, I'll be interested to see, and obviously, as you know, this is also, amongst other things, it's invitation and acceptance season to various and sundry bowl games, your gridiron showcases, your NFLPA games, your East-West Shrine, and, of course, the run that animal, the Senior Bowl. And I guess probably about 50% of the spots have been settled up. Now, obviously, some of that will change. Some guys will, especially at the Senior Bowl level, you'll, you'll get some people declining. You'll get some people getting called up from one all-star game to another based on a, injury or somebody declining or whatever, but that's starting to happen. And, you know, we'll, we'll, there'll be another show sort of dedicated to that. So we'll get hit on that later. Uh, the FCS playoffs are well afoot and have been, some of them have been bananas. There's some, I know I say this all the time, but there's some really good football players playing at the FCS level. And I don't think there's a huge drop off at certain positions at least between FCS and FBS. I think the really good FCS defensive backs would be really good FBS defensive backs. I think the really good FCS wide receivers would also be really good FBS wide receivers. And, of course, the FCS tight end class might be as good or better than the FBS tight end class this year, though, you know, smaller. That's true. Uh, there's a kid at Furman I want you to check out when you get a chance. He's also He's got a super cool um, – Twitter handle is this addition to having a really cool uh, being a really cool prospect. And he's a triple option tight end. But he's a triple option tight end who really catch the ball and obviously he can block because you can't be, you know, he plays at Furman, which is a triple option team. You can't not block. You know <laughs> you know, everybody blocks. You know, you it's a triple option. You can't not block. But uh he's a fun player and we'll talk about him more. Um, but his his his, his uh, what do you call it? His uh, hand, handle is Shumpopotamus, which I think is pretty cool. But he's a he's a fun player, and obviously you know people have talked quite a bit about Dallas to the point Dallas Goddard, to the point where I don't really discuss them anymore. I've moved on to players that are actually you know need need, need more attention. Uh, I think some of the pass rushers, some of the top pass rushers at the F. CS level would also, maybe they wouldn't be, you know, top five or top ten, but I think they would be top 20, top 25 pass rushers uh, at the FBS level. 
obviously people always hit upon offensive, you know, interior defensive linemen and all offensive linemen to talk about the difference between FCS and FBS. And there's some truth to that to some extent. But I would say I think that gap, once again, is narrower than some people might believe. I think the biggest difference I've noticed to some extent sometimes body composition, not even weight and height, but just, you know, I, I don't know if it's because the nutrition, I mean, whatever. You don't see, like, you don't see 310-pounders who are ripped very often at the, well, I mean, you don't see 310-pounders who are ripped very often, period. But you know what I mean. Like, the every once in a while at the FBS level, there'll be a guy who's 310 pounds, and, but he jumps up and down, almost nothing moves. You know what I'm saying? While yeah. <laughs> you don't see that very often at the FCS level. The guy's 310 pounds. If he jumps up and down, it takes a while for everything to settle back into place. Pretty much. Pretty much. Because they don't feed him enough food at that level. <laughs> so, I don't know what it is, but... They just don't eat enough food. I mean, yeah, they, they you know. I th- I think that's I think that's like half the job of all the guys at the FBS level. They just have people that they follow around and shove food in, in, in athletes' faces. Like I think that's what they're. They can't hire those people at the FCS level. So unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They don't have their staff aren't quite as large. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, the the guy on that that. GA on strength and conditioning who is who has the little shovel and follows guys around. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they don't have a, a position for him. You're right at the at the FCS level. There's they don't have the enough in the budget to pay for that kid's travel expenses and you know pay off his or take care of his tuition voucher and all that good and his uh, and his uh, uh, stipend. So things that stood out to me as I watched, uh, Jared Stidham's getting a lot of love, and it's but a lot of it. Mm. But okay, right, exactly. The funny thing is, Jared Stidham hasn't gotten better. I mean, maybe, I should say he hasn't gotten better. Maybe I should. I'm to put this. This is very similar to Jared Stidham I saw as a red shirt. Or was he even a red shirt? Might have been a true freshman. A couple of years ago at Baylor, seemed to be kind of the same dude. Uh, mobile, you know, good athlete, throws well on the run, can also operate from the pocket. Good at getting the ball out to his first read quickly, fairly accurate. Like I said, you know, above I'd say above average, but not elite arm strength. Sort of a poor man's Josh McCown, right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm seeing. I mean, a guy's got all those McCown brother qualities, you know. Um, but luckily for him, he's not at Sam Houston State, so no one can overlook him. But, I mean, he's basically a McCown. And it's sort of surprising to me. I mean, I, I don't know. It's not like he wasn't at some little podunk program before. I mean, Baylor, you know, he was at Baylor – Sort of at the height of Baylor, Baylor's Baylorosity, you know. So you could you could have seen him before and had a pretty good idea of what he is. It seems like people are falling. I don't want to say falling in love. Well, some of them are falling at least in strong like with a guy who. Once again, I'm not the guy that plays the scheme game, but 
if I were the guy that plays the scheme game, I mean, you've got to look long and hard to find this guy, you know, going through a progression, getting to – which doesn't happen that often for anybody nowadays, but you don't see him going one to two to three and, oh, I found the tight end dragging underneath, you know, after 1.7 seconds of scanning the field. You don't see a lot of that in Jared Stidham's game. He, he's big. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's a good athlete, right? He's a good athlete, and he's got a strong arm. What's the other one? I'm trying to – what am I – what's that other one? Starts with a W. Yeah, but – oh, what? He's about Carson Wentz? No, 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 no. It's a big, tall – with a W. Um, I just don't know what it is. But anyways, I mean, Stidham, he's not bad per se. I mean, he's He's a toolsy guy. Kind of. A little toolsy. Yeah, well, just like the McCown brothers were toolsy. Well, he's not that bad. I mean, he's not that. I mean, I would kind of compare Josh Allen to like Josh McCown. Kind of, sort of, but um, I don't know. Uh, we he he's playing that he hasn't really gotten better. The schedule's gotten exactly. better. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. I agree. That's really all that happened. I mean, like, he looks like he, the same he guy played tougher team. He was the same guy. He's always been. He's been the same guy. It's just that he was. He was. He's playing Alabama, or he's playing Georgia, or he's playing like that's really all that happened. So like he yeah. he was still doing the same things. It's just that he was doing it against tougher competition, and he was still able to have success because he's not terrible. He's not a terrible quarterback, but it's kind of I don't know. I don't know what the Stidham love is. Man, I've never really been the biggest Jared Stidham fan. I do know some people on Draft Twitter who are. I do agree that the scheme that Malzahn runs is very binary uh, for the most part. So it's kind of, it's either this or that, and that's about it to it. Which don't get me wrong. I know some people who who can't even work in the binary system. But, but it is not the toughest. You know that too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, yeah, I... Uh, I don't think he should come out for the draft, though, because he's only had one year of experience. As I've already told you before, you could name the the quarterbacks on your hand. I I can't name them off the top of my head right now because they most of them weren't really that good, first of all. But there's really only like a handful of guys who only had one full year of starts because that's the other thing about Stidham. He's never he, – when he played at Baylor, it was like half a season at Baylor. It was like a couple yeah. of, you know, a couple games here and there at Baylor. Uh, and that was it. So, I think, he I has think not – I'm almost certain it was six games Yeah, six games. So, if you're gonna, if this guy declares for the draft, you're talking about a guy who started six games at Baylor and then a full season at SEC, and that's it. That's all. That – People, people would point out that puts him, that still puts him like five or six games up on uh, Mitchell 
I mean, it's a little bit better than that, but based on all the stuff that I do, that's like a red flag, oh, no, like this guy's Cam Newton. Or, or basically, again, it's the Cam Newton Cam, the Cam Newton rule because there's, there's really just him, you know, and it's, it's basically, is he Cam Newton? And then you go, no, okay, then what is he? Because if he's not Cam Newton, then he might be something else, which is not always the best whatever that is, you know, that could be Johnny Manziel. That could be, you know, a whole bunch of different things, but I don't think he's Johnny Manziel, but yeah, I, I, you know, I just think he's a SEC quarterback and it's like, remember that quarterback at Alabama? I know we keep, I know we always say this, but that, that, uh, what was his name? He was a big, tall, white quarterback at Alabama, former Florida state guy. And he got a ton of buzz at the end of the season as well uh, because of different stuff. But, I mean, I think Jared Sidham is fine as a quarterback. I think he's okay. I just don't necessarily think that he should declare for the draft, nor do I think that he's really a high-end, like, top 100 prospect, you know, when it comes to just players in general in the draft. Right. He's... He's a project, like, well, like almost every quarterback you could name in this class, with the exception maybe of Baker Mayfield, uh, Logan Woodside, who for some reason still, I don't know, I give up. I, I, can't, I can't tell anyone on Logan Woodside. I guess I should just stop. <laughs> but, um, well, they don't watch yeah. the Mac, so, you know, <laughs> you got to force them to watch the Mac, and it's like, Oh yeah, I'll watch the Mac, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa, I I didn't get a chance." You know, like it's I don't know. It's just one of those things where you're like, "Oh, watch the Mac." Okay, I will, and then they they forget. <laughs> Do it. <clears throat> yeah, it's like one of those things that like taking your vitamins or uh, you know remembering the floss. You you always know you should do it, but somehow don't do it. Listen, you'll enjoy yourself. Watch the Mac. Do it. Do it. Watch the Mac. I think that's the big thing is you just have to keep egging them on until they do it. Yeah. But that that's that's only I could say. That's the reason why he doesn't have any hype because he plays in the Mac, unfortunately. But that's all I got in terms of, like, why, why he's not. It's like Michael Gallup. Like, Michael Gallup's a really good wide receiver. Yeah. Probably a top five. Probably in the, easily in the top five in terms of the you know the best wide receivers easily. in the class, yeah. but plays at Colorado State. So who legit watches him? You know, yeah, unless you know. unless you are a Colorado State fan or you're a Mountain West Conference junkie. There's definitely are people that are like that. Well, but Michael unless you're Gallup, that, it was Michael Gallup who turned me on to his quarterback Nick Stevens, who I. Uh, kind of hoping gets into, like, the East-West or NFLPA or something, because I think that's a guy who could catch somebody's eye and at least become a, you know, I mean, once again, look at the names of some of the backup quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, just anytime you decide you just want to be, just pick yourself. Like, Kellen Clemens is still collecting NFL game checks, James Coburn. Think about that. Well, Kelly I mean, Clemens. is that a bad thing? Kelly Clemens is a nice guy. What do you have against Kelly Clemens? Um, 
<laughs> I have nothing against mean, selling clothes, but I'm just saying. NFL backups are the weirdest thing is, things in the world because there's like two types now. There's the guy that's always been there for – it's like the guy that stayed in college for like 12 years, you know, like that guy. You have that right, guy. Right. The guy. The guy who the guy who still plays hacky sack on the quad, that guy. Hey, yeah, that guy. <laughs> He's still there. And, and then you have the, like, really young project guy who is not good. He's, like, they're not good – they're not a good quarterback in the sense of being able to execute the offense and do anything else like that. It's just that the coaching staff believes that one day maybe they'll figure it out and they'll end up being, like, the hacky sack guy. Like, that's, that's basically what they're waiting – like, it's those types – it's those two quarterbacks. That's what the backups are in the NFL. It's the guy that's just getting by – collecting a paycheck to do nothing, and then the other guy that really probably shouldn't be there, but they're just hoping that maybe one day he could become the hacky set guy. It's really sad, but that's the state of backup in the NFL. I do agree with you that it's it's kind of – it's just kind of bad. It's kind of sad, but there, – There are names that will astonish you who are one play away from starting for NFL teams, like I said, as a project, I would ask anyone, just go down. I mean, are there some good names there too? Yes, but a sprinkling of good names. But it is shocking who some of the names are when you actually look. <laughs> you actually look to see you. This guy is one play away from starting for good teams, good teams. Like Atlanta Falcons, fix your, your, quarter, your backup situation, your – potentially a playoff team. You're in the Super Bowl last year. I mean, there's all these good teams. I mean, here, once again, I'm not here to praise the Patriots, but look at what the Patriots have managed to do with their backup. They've made, on a position that is usually a sinkhole for most people, they've turned into a money-making proposition. It's a racket. They, they, they're just making it's – it's amazing. They have a whole little cottage industry based on their backup quarterback. Because well, no yeah. one else figure out how to develop backup quarterbacks. Well, because they don't. And yet we want to draft them top ten overall because we think we can develop them. Think about that for a second. So, yeah, people don't, people don't develop quarterbacks anymore. I've been trying to tell people that for a while. But yeah. it really unless, – unless you are Andy Reid – who has a proven – I mean, to me, Andy Reid is a guy who has a proven track record of developing yeah. quarterbacks. Like, proven. Like, he's done and, it. He's been and when there. Harbaugh was, when Harbaugh was in the league, I would say he – even though it was a short track record, I would think it was a yeah. – even though it was a short but fairly established track record of developing young quarterbacks. Exactly. Um, so he, he was there and he did it. But other than that – I will say this, though. Sometimes it's not the X's and the O's, it's the Billy's and the Joe's, you know, because sometimes guys are just in bad spots where they just have – they don't have a good quarterback. They're actually a good quarterback coach. It's just they can't – it's like, you, you know, it, just because you hire Mike Tice doesn't mean he can make Luke Jokel an amazing offensive tackle. Like, he can't do that, you know. Like, there's only so much you can do to fix the situation. However – well, now, the, the Eagles yeah. staff is getting a lot of uh, – and, of course, the Rams staff. Now, of course, it's a one-year wonder so far with sort of both the – or two-year, I guess, well, the Eagles staff. 
But they're both doing a lot of praise. They're both doing a lot of praise. John DeFilippo in um, Philadelphia is getting a lot of praise. McVeigh in Los Angeles is getting a lot of praise. And being hailed as, you know, young QB whisperers or whatever you want to call it. Now, once again, we'll see if they can sustain it. They do, because the one thing, this is kind of a side note, but the, 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 one, the interesting funny thing about Wentz and Goff is based on – so, like, I do, I do a lot of work with first-down conversion rate data. So, basically, right. like, the ability to convert a first down into a first down, which is what you want. You want to take a first down and make a first down, right? And, of course, yes. the ability to take a first down on – to get a first down on second down. So, like, a second down, and you get a first down. And, of course, the third down conversion rate, which is all anybody ever talks about. When Nick Saban was being accosted by that lady and he was like, you know, I don't want to talk to you right now, but okay. What do you need to do better? We need to get better on third down, you know, like basically. So, uh, obviously. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk to this lady. I think, I think you're good looking, but I, I don't want to talk to you. I want to get in the locker room and we need to get better on third down, which is true. Third down is a very crucial down. If you don't convert on third down, you punt. I'm like, okay. But both Goff and Wentz, have been kind of below average on first down, below average on second, especially Wentz. Like, Wentz is one of the worst quarterbacks on second down when it comes to converting first downs in terms of the pass on second down. Like, it's, it's that bad. But on third down, he's amazing. He's one of the best third down conversion rates in the NFL. Same thing with golf. So I just find it interesting because, yeah, they're having a lot of success for winning football games and all that kind of stuff like that. But the difference between them and like the Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or whatever is Tom Brady was, you know, still is very good at converting first downs into first downs and second downs into first, you know, set like the whole spectrum. He's really right. good at that. <laughs> same thing with Drew Brady, well, yeah, same thing with Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. All the downs are accounted for here, when it comes to elite quarterbacks with Goff and Wentz, third downs accounted for, which again is a very crucial down. Obviously, I mean, I don't need to explain to people why third down is crucial, but it does speak to the fact that there is some inefficiencies that are still there. It's just that they're really good on third down. So I guess play calling wise, I don't know. It's something I was going to look into at the end of the season because it, it was just kind of an odd pattern. And I'm not saying Wentz is bad or Goff is bad. I'm just saying that it's just a pattern that has emerged. It's continued to stick around um, is the fact that they're really good on third down, but second down and first down, they're just not so amazing, you know, in terms of creating big plays and, you know, stuff like that. Got it. Yeah. So we live in a world where Blake Bortles is still a starter. Somebody decided to start Geno Smith over Eli Manning, though Eli has not yep. been good this year. Nathan Peterman got a chance to start over Tyrod Taylor, who is I don't care what. I don't. I don't know why they did it. I don't understand I don't, why they. No, no matter how you slice it, you can't make Tyrod Taylor be worse than a top twelve quarterback in the league. No matter what numbers you use, I don't. Literally any number you use, if you're into completion percentage, if you're into yards per, you know, the only thing where he's not great, I guess, is the whole adjust, air yards or whatever the adjusted True. yards per well, attempt or whatever. But he had a high sack rate. But he well, wasn't turning yeah, the football that's over. Not really his fault. <laughs> I, I understand, but like I didn't understand the move. 
because, as you know, I live in my little data world for the most part. I mean, I do watch, you know, the games occasionally. Like, I've watched a couple games uh, yesterday. But, you know, I, when the when the move was made to get rid of Tyrod Taylor, I actually was legitimately tweeting at Bills fans. I'm like, why are you doing this? Because, like, you – okay, you have some issues on offense, but your turnover ratio is – pretty darn good. Like, the turnover percentage they had was one of the best in the league. Uh, Tyrod Taylor was, is, historically speaking, if you go by touchdown interception ratio, is he, either, is he number one, number two? He's somewhere in the top, like, four or five in history, if memory serves it correctly. He's somewhere in the top. Yes. You know, the offense, okay. I, mean, it, I mean, it's pretty I mean, it's pretty high relative to the rest of the, rest of the teams, is all I'm trying to say. But I was just kind of looking at all that information and I was just thinking to myself, okay, why are you doing this? Because if you get Nate Peterman in there, what is he bringing to the table? Like, how does he make you better? All he's doing, he, he turned, he basically turned one of the best turnover percentages in the NFL into below average into one of the worst turnover percentages in the NFL. That's all that happened when they put Nate Peterman in there to start. And I don't know about you, but Bill Belichick knows this, or at least maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just has this sort of instinctive feel for the game or whatever you want to call it, I guess. But honestly, I do think he looks at the statistics, just to be honest. I know he doesn't say he does, but I'm pretty sure he does because they, <laughs> yeah, consistently, cause they consistently have high turnover ratios, like in terms of, you know, really high – I wouldn't say high, but really, really low turnover ratios. Um because he knows that, hey, if you turn the football over, you're going to lose more football games. So I didn't quite understand the Tyrod Taylor. Is he, was the offense of the Bills perfect? No, it wasn't perfect. But you basically took a guy that was executing the offense and getting the job done for the most part and then giving it to another guy who's basically just popping the football up, you know, had that like that five-pick game and – you know, consistently just turning the football over over and over and over again. And all that's going to do is you're going to lose even more games. So I don't know what the Bills are doing is all I'm trying to say because that just seemed kind of just way too soon, especially for a guy like Nate Peterman who I don't even like. And, I again, I don't like Nate Peterman that much. I, I didn't really like him coming out. I The whole pro – he's a pro-style offense quarterback uh, or whatever was just kind of nauseating, you know. Yeah. Um but yeah, I just but didn't understand that. It wasn't move. particularly pro style. The only thing that made it quote unquote pro style, they were under center about oh, 27 point something percent of the time. So he did play action where he actually turned his back to the defense. Oh, they had a tight end on the field pretty much all the time, or most, not all, but you know, more, probably right around 50% of the snap they had a tight end. And around a third of the time, they even had a fullback on the field. That's the only thing that was, of course, most NFL teams don't have a fullback on the field that much. So I, I don't know how, how pro that is nowadays. But as you've pointed out, and I'm sure others have pointed out, the actual passing concept in Pitt's offense, snag, um, curl flat, of course, the all-go special that everybody runs for Bert. Um, Slugo seam, which everybody runs. 
the classic NCAA concept, which is post over dig with a once again either an arrow route or a drag or a Texas route um, on the backside uh, as a you know as a check down. Uh, I mean, without thinking hard, I can name almost every passing concept they ran that season. Um, all slants, um, all curls, um, and then variations on that where some of those things would convert versus man or versus zone. You know, some of those things would turn from a hitch to, you know, a hitch and go. Or some of those things would turn to, you know, from a hitch to a seam, if, you know, depending on what kind of coverage they got. Some of those things would convert from a curl to a curl and go. Or, you know, some of those things would convert. But, but, I mean, smash routes, you know. But, I mean, it was like basically 22, 23 sort of basic passing concepts with variations based on coverage. That's not pro style. It's not, but it's just weird, you know? Like, I just, I, I, like I said, I don't understand why the move is made other than maybe, the, I mean, they drafted Peterman. I mean, that's the big, that's the big thing that I've been trying to – I've been trying to have empathy for the coaches or at least trying to think what they're thinking. All I can think is they drafted him and they think that he's better, but he's not really better. So – and I'm not saying that the Bills are destined to be this playoff team or anything else like that, although they definitely had some potential this year. But I just felt like you had a system that was doing okay and then you just kind of blew it up. Like, I don't know. I, I Tyra Taylor has been a decent quarterback uh, over the last, you know, couple of years. And to get rid of him for Nate Peterman, who just made things worse, just seems like a bad decision. You know, like, you should be trying to get better, not, not getting – like, it just felt like a really political decision versus a actually trying to win football game decision, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, a couple more things to hit on before we tie a bow around it. Now, you say you're, you're starting to do some of your FCS work. Uh, I know you're early in the process. Where are you with that? Because I, at some point I'm going to want to talk FCS guys with you, but I know that you haven't, haven't gotten far with that yet. I am at... What conference am I at right now? Let me just double check. I got through – I think I'm on the – oh, yeah, I'm past the CAA, like all the CAA – like all the – alphabetically speaking, all the teams from A to CAA, I've gotten through those. But I still have the other – the other ones, <laughs> all the other all the other teams. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that that's how far I've I've gotten to this point in terms of that because I've been doing uh, well right now. Like I said, I'm in terms of like projects I'm finishing. Obviously, the FBS. I'm probably going to have that done probably tonight, and then I'll probably post that in terms of all the data for that. And then the FCS stuff, which should probably be done by the end of the week. And then on top of that, the high school quarterback data stuff because. I've been doing that stuff as well. So 
it's just a lot of data collection stuff. But th but that's the thing. It's like once you get it done, you're done for, for the most part, other than double checking and uh, stuff like that. But um, but yeah, the FCS stuff I think will probably have done sometime either by the end of this week or next week. It just depends on how fast I can get all stuff. But right now I'm all the way – the CAA stuff is done, and then I just have to move to the other conferences and because there's a lot of – a lot of conferences in the FCS. A lot of teams in the FCS. Yeah. So obviously, it is. It is vast. It contains multitudes. Yeah, there's a lot. A lot going on there. Which is why I. I can't believe. You know. Whatever. I mean, there's. There's so many. There's so many teams. With all those teams, there's good players to be to be had. There's but, good players, but you have to you have to get people to believe, you know. You gotta, but that's the thing about data. It gives you facts, gives you figures. As I've been trying to, uh, I don't know. My new motto is, you know, are, are we debating facts or are we, are we debating feelings? Because you may not feel good about the FCS for whatever reason, but is it logically based? Like, are you? Are you logically against the FCS because this player is actually bad, or are you against it because you just feel like it's bad because you haven't had a lot of success from it, you know, stuff like that? Because, like, my general feelings, as you know, Bill, my general feelings on the FCS is that the reason why the FCS success rate is so low is because they put all their stock into, into traits and different things that don't really matter that much. You know, if you draft the player that's six foot six and has long arms and looks like Adonis, but could barely get five sacks at the FCS level, how do you think he's going to do at the NFL level? <laughs> you know, just because he looks like Adonis and he has long arms and he looks the part, that doesn't mean that he's going to end up. And he, but he only got five. Like that's a major red flag, and I think that consistently happens at the FCS level is they don't look at production, they just look at traits. But it's even worse at that level because because of the things that I just said, because they, they tend to, to, at least at the FBS level, they're, they're paying a little bit more attention, but at the FCS level, they're purely just looking at looks and that kind of stuff over, can they actually play football? Are they actually good? All that kind of stuff. So that's, that's been my biggest kind of hurdle. And the data is there to back it up. I mean, that's why I wanted to do the FCS collection because I could point to all the players that successfully made the transition from the FCS to the FBS and go, this is what their production traits were, and this is what these guys' production traits were. And I think communicating it in that way, that this is not data, this is a trait, because it's a trait. It, it literally, like, that's, the tra that's what a trait means. I know a lot of people don't want to call it data trait, but it, that's what it is. Uh, I think that communicating it that way, I think, will open people's eyes to, you know, looking at guys and, and being more open uh, to guys from that perspective, if that makes any sense. But that's that's really why I wanted to do it, because really nobody does the production stuff at the SS level. So I'm, I'm like, I, I got to do it because nobody else is doing it. Yeah, good point. You'll have cornered the market. Yeah, I keep cornering the market on a lot of stuff, so I might as well add that to it. <laughs> and I guess we'll touch on a couple more things before we close this out. So 
Bowl bids, of course, as you know, are going out as well. How, how much or how do you, you obviously look at a lot of data. Does the bowl, do you look at bowls differently or do you just toss them into the, the vat with everything else? The most important information that I get from bowl games, uh, well, uh, do you mean like all-star bowl games or do you mean like like bowl, bowl games? Like, uh, well, right now I'm talking about bowl games as in the bowl games, as in the normal. Oh, the bowl know, games. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I absolutely add in the bowl game information uh, to it. It's just that I do the, the pre-bowl selection just because there's teams that don't get invited to the bowl game. So it kind of takes care of that work, if you will. So I end up having, I don't know, I just do a lot of work. But, yeah, I do add in the bowl stuff. As far as, like, bowl games in the process, uh, I just kind of look at it as anything else. Because the big thing about bowl games to me is, if you do watch a lot of film, is you see that progression in a guy. Uh, and the best example I could give is, like, with Demarcus Lawrence. You know, when I first saw Demarcus Lawrence, like, the first – game of the season in August of him in his final year, uh, he honestly didn't look that great. He was kind of stumbling around, you know, it was the first game of the year, uh, made a lot of mistakes, made a lot of mental mistakes, looked kind of weak, didn't really look uh, zoned, you know, zoned in, uh, if you will, kind of unfocused in terms of his approach. And then you go to the final game he had in the bowl, like the bowl game with Marcus Lawrence, he was a completely different player, you know, like you could hold up the first game of the year and hold up the bowl game and you could see that progression in terms of being just meh to like really great in terms of Lawrence. So um, I do like to see bowl games because of that progression, you know, to see that a guy's progress, because that's what you want to see anyway. You want to see a guy progress. You don't want to see a guy regress. So seeing that progression, if a guy has a good bowl game, I don't, I don't make, my evaluation hinge on that bowl performance, but I do want to see some progression in terms of what they're doing and stuff like that. Though I do know some people put way too much in the, into the bowl. It's like Derek, like remember Derek Carr's final bowl game, remember against USC, oh, you know, yeah. like, and he played kind of, well, he played USC and he was playing USC athletes going up against Mount West conference at like, what's well, going to happen. Like it was that kind of game. Uh, and, of course, people are making all these conclusions about Derek Carr based on that game. Like, well, if you can't yeah. handle USC, then how is he going to handle the NFL? You know, oh, 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 you know type of thing. <laughs> uh, but, again, that just kind of highlights the point that that's why you need to be watching the whole season. But, again, I, the other, I guess the only thing I can say is it's I just treat it like any other information. It's just extra information to make a decision. I don't put a ton of weight into it. I just kind of weigh it as much as, as everything else in terms of the collective view of a, you know, of that, of the prospect. Okay. Okay. Got it. And uh, last thing before we close this sucker out. So in the, you know, the interim between now and the bowl game, obviously the FCS playoffs continue, the division two playoffs continue, the division three playoffs continue, the NAIA playoffs, Conclude soonish, um, not this week, but I think the following week. 
what do you do during this time? Is it just more number crunching? Do you start to catch up on games that you recorded but haven't watched yet? What do you What are you doing for the ne- for the next uh, for the foreseeable immediate future? Everything. So, um, doing all the data stuff. Obviously, you know, doing all the data collection. Like this time period right now is really data collection, double checking stuff. Obviously, that's the biggest thing. Tri- triple checking stuff, honestly, uh, because of just how much stuff you're doing. Um, you know, and I don't really have any minions or anything yet, anyway. Um, but yeah, just you know, doing all the data stuff, going back and watching games that I have recorded that I just haven't seen. I I have a lot of the the Pac-12 and 60 or the Big Ten and 60. You know, those, those kind of uh, those condensed games, if you will. So I kind of like that that system. So I have a lot of those just kind of sitting there that I haven't opened up yet. So definitely kind of get into those uh, a bit and. And yeah, for the most part, that's really what this time, of, like right now, that's really what it is, is doing all the data collection stuff. And once all the data collection stuff is done, it's, then it gets really focused in terms of pinpointing, you know, because you have all the guys that you watched on film, then you get all the data at the end of the year, then the data points you in a certain direction in terms of here are some players that you should check out, here are some players that put up a red flag, or here are some players that put up a yellow flag, or whatever it is. And then you get all that stuff to kind of play with um, at this point, you know, like moving forward, I guess. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of what this time, like for me, at least in the process, it's doing a lot of data collection uh, before the bowl games. And then once the bowl games start, you know, you'll have players that really popped. That's another thing too, is you'll have players who maybe did really well on, on production. And then when you go into the bowl games, you can kind of watch, those players in the bowl games to see what's what as well. So you kind of have that added layer of stuff. Because I, I kind of like the bowl season because they don't do all the games all at once. It kind of parses it out a bit, you know, a little bit here, like five games on this day and then one game. So like it makes it kind of uh, a more in, a more leisurely time of watching players, I guess. So obviously. But that's, that's another kind of benefit to bowl games, I guess, is you know, you, you get to enjoy the games a little more instead of just all the games all at once, and then the next week another set, and then, you know, so on and so forth. Okay. Got it. And I I also play and catch up on a large number of games that I wasn't able to, you know, but once again, you only can watch so many things at one time, so I can put the following, the uh, – Good Lord, I um, said polishing finishes. The uh, put the the uh, you know the finishing polish on all of my various and sundry teams and my position rankings and things like that. So I hope to have all that done soon as well. And then obviously I'll be looking forward to seeing the rest of the invitations to the All Star Game. Yeah, when I say bowl games, I mean bowl games. I always try to distinguish. I, so I'll never call, you know, the Senior Bowl a bowl game. I call it an all-star game. Uh, but, yes, so that'll that's one thing I'll be monitoring. And then, um, obviously, I'm lining up a bunch of, I think, a pretty solid raft of guests for my um, 
TDS Pro Prospects radio shows, which will be starting back up again very, very soon. And we'll <clears throat> carry on up until, you know, the, the draft period itself. And I'll be looking forward to seeing what other things you have that are coming down the pike. But it, it's interesting to me to see what lessons are learned and what lessons are not learned. You know, everybody who's involved in the evaluation process, whether they be, you know, fanalists who only watch guys who they're pretty sure are going to go in the first couple of rounds, whether they be guys who are, you know, full-on, full-time media guys, whether they be guys who are neither of those first two things but work at it as if they were at least one of those things or working for an NFL front office or whatever. To see how different the approaches are sometimes to to data, to film work, to even how many players you try to see. Now, obviously, you know, life has interfered with me seeing the number of players I'd like to see because of, you know, family obligations and jobs and stuff. But I'm never going to have, you know, rankings where, you know, I have a top 10, but I've only seen 20 guys, you know, like that's, that's, that I, it just seems, you know, I'm not going to have to yeah. rankings. Yet. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I know what you mean. You're going to do a little bit more homework, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm not quite where I feel comfortable dropping position rankings. Complete. I have, like, preliminary stuff, but I'm not quite there yet. But I'm trying to get there in the next couple of weeks so that by the time we get to the postseason all-star games, that's what I refer to them as, which include the Shrine and NFLPA and the Senior and uh, the College Gridiron Showcase or whatever, whatever else is out there, all of the above and others, but – I want to be a Tropic Bowl or whatever, all the other, whatever the ones that are out there, the, the cel- not Celebration Bowl, the uh, whatever, the Dream Bowl, Dream Bowl, the other one I'm sure I think. But yeah, I want to have a pretty good idea of, you know, who the guys are that I think are, you know, that I think are the guys and, and why. But Jim, it's always, well, first of all, it's always a learning experience. I mean, there's things to be learned if you're willing to learn from every single time we do this thing and like I said I mean I used to be you know a just watch the tape bro dude for well you know from the time I started doing this as a child basically until just a few years ago and I can thank you and a few other people that I've run across who shown me that it's not only you know wise but necessary to have a pretty good idea of what what data is trying to tell you whether or not you become a, a quote-unquote data guy, which I don't know if I'll ever – well, I know I'll never get to where you are, but uh, I might get to the point where I could maybe be one of your minions. But, uh, but I want to know enough so that I'm not making foolish decisions, I guess, or, or, at, least not, or at least I'm not unaware of the right. fault of certain players, so I'll put it that way. Because – as I was telling one, because I, because another guy, uh, a guy, he's a recruiter for Eastern Michigan, and he was having a little issues conveying to coaches. And I just told him, like, you, the, the attitude you have to have about data is that it's to point blind spots out, and everybody doesn't think they have a blind spot. Everybody, coaches, whatever, like, you know, your ego is always going to get in the way of getting better at anything you do in life. You're, you're always going to think, oh, I'm the best at this. I'm the best at that, blah, 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 blah. You know, you're always going to be like that. 
But what data does is it goes, maybe you're not the best. Like, maybe there's some things, like, maybe that player that you saw and you really liked isn't as good as you thought he was. Maybe the player that you thought was really bad or wasn't very good is actually good. That's all that data really does is it gets your ego in check. You know, it, it, that's really all it does. And I don't think there's anything uh, fundamentally, fundamentally bad about that. So I just, I, it, it, it not, and I don't blame people for dismissing it because of that fact, but that's kind of what I try to, at least right now, I've been trying to just trying to explain to people that that's all data really is. Data is just there to tell you something when you think in your heart that, like, it, it's telling you inconvenient truth, facts, whatever you want to call it at times, you know, about a prospect or a player or whatever, or whatever your blind spot evaluation is, because everybody has a, has a position that they're not good at scouting. I don't have positions I'm good at scouting. I'm pretty sure you, you've been doing this longer than me, and you probably have positions that you're not the best at scouting. So data a lot of times just helps you out to kind of, See where those blind spots are. See where maybe your evaluation isn't that great. And it doesn't matter what level of competition you play. It doesn't matter if you're an NFL head coach to, like you said, a fan scout. You know, you're going to have stuff that you're not catching because of whatever reason. So, um, but that's really all data is. I mean, it's just giving you more information to make better decisions. And um, the fact that people are really against it uh, always kind of amazes me. But uh, I again, I can't blame them, but I just think it's uh, you know, hey, if I get enough of you, get of, of at least enough guys like you, Bill, you know, where you're not fully into it, but at least you understand it, you know, or at least have enough to kind of swim a bit. I I, I think that that's enough to kind of get people, you know, that's at least where I want most people to be, you know, like I don't I don't need everybody to be so into it where they're just running spreadsheets every day, all day, you know, type of thing. Um, but definitely to the point where you understand it, you have a clear idea of what it is and what its purpose is. Cause I think there's a lot of that too, where people don't even understand what the purpose of data is. You know, why do you even use it? You know? Well, that's the thing that I believe is going to change. I mean, it won't completely change, but I think, Slowly but surely, you'll see more and more people at least understanding what they don't understand and beginning to know what they don't already know. As always, Jim, it is a privilege, an honor, and a pleasure. I know that every time we get a chance uh, to do this, one, I always learn something. Two, it opens up new questions for us to, uh, to explore next week. And, of course, soon, like I said, we'll have a better idea of who's going to be at the Senior Shrine, NFLPA, the uh, College Gridiron Showcase, the Dream Bowl, any of the others of the postseason all-star games and gives us people to focus on. And then in addition to obviously that, we can obviously discuss, you know, anybody who's deserving and may have gotten quote-unquote snubbed. Once again, I thank you for your time, your talents, and your attention. And I think probably by the time we get to the the holiday season, we'll get back on our quote-unquote normal schedule. Um, but uh, I will definitely let you know if anything changes. Thank you once again, sir, and I will do this again soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.